I'm thrilled to be here again with you to open God's Word. It's such a, a blessing in my life, and I hope it will be in yours as well. I'll try to speak a bit slower this time. Uh, my wife did some research for me. She said that 160 words per minute is fast. However, I did some research as well, and the human brain can comprehend 200 to 400 words per minute. Nonetheless, I will try to speak slower. Uh, just know that the sermon will be longer. Um, and this is a, a long sermon. Our text today is 2 Peter 3, 1 through 13. And though there's only one main idea, the idea is massive. The scope and the significance warrants a longer sermon. So prepare yourselves. But before our sermon, let us go before our Father in heaven. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you and we praise you for who you are. We praise you for your plan of salvation, for salvation in Christ through his death and resurrection and our hope of glory in him. Humble us under the splendor of your might. Pierce our heart with your word and awaken our minds to live for you, for your glory and our joy. Amen. What is the most important thing for a believer to know? Besides the gospel, which is the most important thing for anyone to know, the truth that Jesus is the Son of God, who died for the forgiveness of sin and was raised to give eternal life to all who believe in him. But for the believer, for the one who already believes this, is there one truth that should take primary residence in our minds? Is there one truth? one idea that should be the ever-present, overarching, organizing principle that shapes and informs all that we do. One might say to know God or to know Jesus, but such statements are so broad they do not carry much weight if they're not fleshed out with more meaningful details. What about understanding the order of salvation, justification, the doctrines of grace, the attributes of God, the proper relationship of Christ's two natures in his one person, or the Trinity. Now these are indeed important, some even essential to the Christian faith, but does any of these doctrines provide us with the primary motivation for how we ought to live? Does any of those beliefs energize us to have a single-minded passion and an unwavering commitment to pursue God's glory and our joy in him above all things? Now I think our text presents us with this one idea and should therefore always be on the forefront of our minds, organizing and directing our whole lives. So what is this most important thing for a believer to know? I would argue that it is the truth that Jesus is coming back. It is the promise of his coming and what that means. Now, perhaps I am overreaching a bit with this claim. Perhaps there are other truths that are of equal significance, such as the goodness of God or the sovereignty of God or the faithfulness of God or the reality that God is supremely valuable, that there is no greater good or pleasure than to know God and to be in his life-giving presence, that he is worth every cost. But I would argue that all this comes to a head in the truth that Christ is coming again. Now, in order to better understand the significance of 2 Peter 3, 1 through 13, and to see how Peter regards the second coming of Christ as a matter of first importance, let us first look at what comes before to see one, what is the fundamental theological reality that grounds this letter as a whole? Two, what is his ultimate goal? Three, what is his main reason for writing the letter? Four, what are his main concerns? And finally, five, 
how does he structure the letter as a whole to convey these matters? Though this may sound like a lot, it will be handled quickly and easily. As we move through these five aspects of 2 Peter, you will see for yourselves their coherency and cogency. One, the fundamental theological reality that grounds everything that Peter is writing is expressed in his first statement of the letter, chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Because of that truth, it is Peter's ultimate goal for that reality to be played out in our lives for God's glory. It is summed up in the blessing that he gives in the beginning. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And it is restated in his concluding exhortation. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Do you see the connection between God's ongoing saving grace in our lives, that is growth in godliness, and the knowledge of God and of Christ? It is a cause and effect relationship. Growth in grace happens through the knowledge of God and of Christ as God's essential and sufficient means of our growth in grace. There is no other way and nothing else that is needed for us to become more like Christ other than God's power working in us through the knowledge of him. Therefore, Peter's main reason for writing is to remind believers of that knowledge through which we grow in godliness. Not only does this make sense given the theological reality that is driving Peter's letter, but he also explicitly states such a purpose twice in the letter, both in chapter 3, verse 1, and also in chapter 1, 12, 15, which reads, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Peter's arms are about to be stretched out. He's about to die, and these are the truths he wants to leave us with, that he's making every effort so that we might remember them always. They must be quite important. Therefore, Peter's main concern is the obstruction of these truths through the active presence of false teachers, and secondarily, through the passive possibility of forgetfulness on the part of the believer. So Peter warns of false teachers and their claims, refuting them and condemning them, so that believers, knowing this beforehand, would take care not to be carried away with the air of lawless people and lose their own stability, 2 Peter 3, 17. Naturally, it makes sense that Peter would address these concerns, right? If Peter's ultimate goal is for believers to remain steadfast in the faith and to live godly lives for God's glory, and if this is accomplished through the knowledge of the truth, then for the truth to be attacked by false teachers or for the truth to fade from one's own thinking through the lack of stimulating reminders, then Peter's goal is threatened. Now, to handle these concerns and to accomplish his goal, Peter first gives the theological reality that grounds his reminder, 2 Peter 1.3. He then gives his first reminder, the qualities of godly living that stem from that, which we ought to strive after, 1.5-7, through 7, along with further reasons for pursuing these qualities, namely, fruitfulness now and eternal rewards later, as opposed to ineffectiveness and failure to enter the kingdom of heaven, 1.8-11. through 11. Now, because of these reasons, Peter expressly states that it is his intention to stir them up by way of reminder so that they may recall these truths at all times, even after his death, 1, 12 through 15. Peter further grounds the importance of his reminders in the simple fact that they are true. 
confirmed in Christ's transfiguration and in the prophetic word of Scripture as God's word, 1, 16 through 21. Then in chapter 2, Peter digresses to warn against false teachers that will be among them, even in their churches, just as false teachers were present in Israel. After this digression, Peter again picks up his task of reminding the faithful in chapter 3, which brings us to our main text. Chapter 3, verse 1, Peter says, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved, and both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So this is Peter's second letter to them. There is a fair amount of debate over what the first letter is. Most conservative scholars argue that it is First Peter, others that it's a lost letter, and others still that it is Second Peter chapters 1 and 2, with chapter 3 sent separately. Beyond this, there are yet more opinions. But for us, what matters here is the single-minded purposefulness of the author. The fact that two letters are written to the same people by the same author with the same purpose highlights the importance of the letter's purpose. Peter's purpose, as this text says, is to stir up their sincere mind by way of reminder. The verb to stir literally means to wake, to awaken, that is to arouse from sleep, which is obviously not what it means here in this context. But it does carry that connotation nonetheless. To wake, translated as to stir, is figuratively used here to mean to stimulate one's thinking. Peter intends to bring thoughts that may have faded to the background back to the forefront of their minds, to bring back to the surface what may not have been totally lost or forgotten, but perhaps overshadowed by other concerns. Right? It is one thing simply to possess knowledge of some fact, and quite another thing to know that fact as a present meditation, a knowledge active in your mind, shaping and informing how you see the world and how you live your life moment by moment. It is the difference between knowledge that is asleep and knowledge that is awake. Now, Peter describes their mind as sincere. This is in contrast to the mind of the scoffers yet to be introduced, who intentionally ignore the truth. Now, believers do not typically ignore the truth, but the significance of the truth does tend to slip from its rightful place in our minds, especially as we get bogged down by various concerns of this world or just by time simply going by without a reminder. Indeed, even the sincerest in the faith need ongoing reminders of the truth if they are to remain in the faith. That is why we need the church, just as the author of Hebrews says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. Now, just as a side note, the verb to stir here in Hebrews is a different word, meaning to rouse to activity. But my point here is that what Peter is doing is what we all still need. We need one another to remind one another of the truth, to encourage one another, to move one another to good works and godliness, and to keep ourselves from sin and apostasy. For it is the human condition to forget, and it is the church that is God's means of grace to remind us of the truth so that we, so that we may press on toward the goal and finish the race. Peter then gives the immediate goal of stimulating our thinking in the content of the reminder, verse 2, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior through your apostles. What are these predictions, and what is this commandment? First, I think it is right to say that Peter has one idea in mind, not two. Given how Peter relates the old to the new throughout this letter, 
declaring Christ as the promised fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy already in his first coming, and as the future full fulfillment in his second, and given that the reminder is singular, along with the grammatical function of the connective and, it makes the most sense that the reminder is one idea, foretold by the prophets of old and authoritatively confirmed by our Lord and Savior. So just as Lord and Savior here are two aspects of one person, so the Old Testament predictions in Christ's commandment are two inextricably linked aspects of one idea. Why then does Peter introduce this idea in such broad terms? I think Peter uses this language to provide weight, to show how true, how authoritative, and how all-encompassing it is, that it essentially encapsulates all of Christ's teachings and all of the prophets. You have the testimony of both the old and the new. You have promise and fulfillment. You have the authority of God's word through the, through the prophets, the apostles, and ultimately his son. And you have many prophets with many predictions and one Lord with one commandment. The vagueness of this statement, however, warrants further explanation. I believe, especially in light of what Peter says next, that he has the reality of the day of the Lord in mind. In other words, the Old Testament predictions in Christ's commandment all center on his second coming. Indeed, the day of the Lord appears to be the central message of the Old Testament, and most of Christ's teachings are grounded in the reality of that day. For instance, Jesus commands, stay awake, for you, for you not know on what day your Lord is coming. Matthew 24, 42. And now Peter wants to awaken us, so to speak, to faithful Christian living, which is how Jesus taught us to be awake and ready for his return in Matthew 24 and 25. And Peter wants to awaken us to this by awakening our minds with the reality of Christ's return. It is as if Peter is saying, hey, wake up. Christ is coming back. How are you living? What will Christ find when he returns? A faithful servant or a wicked servant? A wise virgin or a foolish virgin? Faith demonstrated in good works or lazy, selfish faithlessness? Will you be found without spot and blemish? Will you be richly welcomed into the kingdom of heaven or cast into utter darkness? Will Jesus extend his hand and wipe away your every tear to be with him where there is pleasures forevermore? Saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Or, or will Jesus say to you, depart from me to where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, I never knew you. On that day, on that great and terrible day of the Lord, on the last day, on the day of Christ, when he comes to judge the ungodly and to be glorified in his saints, will you experience incomparable glory and joy or unimaginable wrath and fury. Now, this is exactly how he develops the idea. Verse 3 and 4, he writes, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. This is neither a sincere question nor argument. They are saying this to scoff so that they may live out their sinful desires with no inconvenient truth spoiling their sinful lusts. Right? If you're thinking about how Christ is going to come back to judge the ungodly, that puts not a little damper on your enjoyment of sin. Suppressing the truth, suppressing the reality of Christ's return in the final judgment is much more conducive to pursuing one's sinful desires to the fullest, which is what these scoffers want and what we all do apart from God's grace. This is, what, this is what we see in Romans 1. 
Though the wicked know that God exists, they suppress the truth and live lives of unrighteousness. And though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give their approval to those who practice them. Now, the fact that Peter says that these scoffers will attack the truth of Christ's second coming for their sinful desires reinforces the idea that remembering that Christ is coming again is vital to move us to faithful Christian living and endurance. Now, let us look at what these scoffers will say. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? The implication of this rhetorical and scornful question is that there is no promise coming, that it's been too long, that if Christ was going to come back, it would have happened already. Instead, they argue that what has been happening will keep happening just as it has been happening since the beginning. That the past indicates that no world-changing, new creational act of divine judgment is coming. But, Peter tells us why they can say this and why it is disingenuous and dead wrong. Verses 5 through 7. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. This is Genesis 1, the original creation. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. This is Genesis 6, Noah's flood. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Ironically, Peter shows us that the exact opposite of the scoffer's misinformation is true, that continuity with the past actually indicates not uniformitarianism, but cataclysmic new creational acts of divine judgment. So yes, you scoffers, the future will be like the past. Peter shows us that there is a redemptive historical pattern of salvation through judgment, established by God's powerful word that brings into existence things that are not. God's word formed the first creation out of water, and God's word judged that world with water. And in its wake, God made a type of new creation. And now that creation, the one that we find ourselves in, is by God's same word stored up for fire, a final judgment for a final new creation. Peter is drawing from a rich biblical theology that centers on the person and work of Christ. Peter knows how everything in the Old Testament points to Christ and is fulfilled in Christ in his first and second comings. He sees how the redemptive historical movement displayed in Scripture from old to new, from temporary to eternal, from lesser to greater, from shadow to reality, culminates in Christ. Indeed, Christ became the head of the new creation in his first coming, and he will bring it to completion at his second. Why do we need God's salvation through judgment? Why do we need this new creation? Because the old has been corrupted by sin. Moreover, as we can see, the flood did not and could not fix it. Neither was it intended to do so. It points beyond itself to a greater judgment and a greater need of salvation and to a greater Savior, one who can rid the world of sin without ridding the world of ourselves. Now, this is all part of God's plan. Creation, fall, judgment, and redemption all exist for God's glory in Christ and redeeming the people for the praise of his glorious grace. Indeed, God is more glorified in redeeming the people from sin than he is in creating a world that would not have needed salvation. And so, as some have said, we have the blessed fall, so God's grace and power and glory may be made known to us in redemption. But why then has this full redemption not yet happened? As the scoffers jeer, why is a salvation that is supposed to be so near so slow? 
if Christ is coming soon, as he taught and as the apostles thought and as the early church believed he would even in their own lifetime, then where is this promise coming? Indeed, the last words of Jesus in the Bible, in the last book of the Bible, at the end of the book is the promise, surely I am coming soon. But it has been thousands of years. What is going on? Has Jesus forgotten? Does he not care about our plight? That his people are suffering and are awaiting his arrival? Is he distracted, indifferent, incompetent? Of course not. But Peter wants to address these concerns so that we may not be caught off guard and carried away with lies and doubts sown by scoffers. He wants to encourage us by reminding us of the sure promise of our faithful God who cannot lie, who is working out his plan, who is not slow, but who has an all-powerful, good, and glorious purpose for his so-called delay. First, Peter explains that God does not experience time like us. Verse 8, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Obviously, this can't be literally true. Otherwise, it's a contradiction. But it does clearly convey Peter's point. In one sense, in one sense it has been two days since Christ's departure. In another sense, it has been almost 730 million years. But to God, what's the difference? None. I think we can relate to this to a degree. Time flies when you're having fun, but when you're in pain or bored, time grinds to a halt. An hour-long movie for a kid is nothing, but an hour-long car ride is forever, and 30 minutes of doing dishes is eternity. But for God who exists outside of time, who sees the beginning from the end, who does not age, change, or grow weary, who is eternal and everlasting himself. What is thousands of years? If the nations are but a drop in the bucket, if the vastness of the seas and the earth and the heavens is as nothing to God, if the earth is but his footstool, what is thousands, even millions of years? It is as nothing. Though he understands the passing of time, he is not like us. He is not a man who is bound by time, who does not experience life without it, but who is life himself apart from time. So, if someone, a friend or a spouse, told you that he was going on a trip far away, but would return soon, and if it had only been two days, you would not think that he was delaying, or that something had happened, or that he was not going to keep his promise. So it is with Christ. For man is not the standard of all things, but God is. Second, Peter explains why it is taking as long as it is. Verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So yes, to be fair, there has been some time. 2,000 years is kind of a long time to wait for a promise. But it is not slowness on God's part, Though it may seem like slowness to some, it is, in fact, God's patience toward you. Peter gives, God's reasons for, God, Peter gives God's reason for his patience, namely that he is not willing for any to perish, but for all to reach repentance. God's so-called slowness in fulfilling his promise to send Christ again is actually God's patience toward you, because he is not willing for any to perish, but for all to reach repentance. Do you see? The day of judgment... And the, and the destruction of the godly is coming, and it will come when Christ returns. 
So God is patient, enduring scoffing and sinful rebellion rather than bringing immediate judgment. Because if God were to send Christ back before the appointed time that he has set up, Acts 1-7, then you, even you who believe now, may have been lost and destroyed. But this is contrary to God's will. And so he waits. He remains patient toward you. But the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly will come. So what does that mean? Does God's patience run out? Can he not keep his wrath under control? Does he sabotage his own will to save by sending Christ back when he does to judge? Or does he send Christ back only once he has accomplished his will? Right? Isn't it God's will for Christ to lose none of all that his Father has given him, but to raise them up on the last day? John 6, 37 through 40. But if Christ were to come back before his lost sheep heard his voice and followed him, then they would perish with the ungodly at his return. But this will not be because it is not God's will. See also John 10, 25 through 29. Jesus says, The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now often 2 Peter 3.9 is taken out of context, and people say God is not willing for any to perish, as if that statement itself is from Scripture. Some have even taken this to mean that everyone will be saved. But again, God has a day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Does it make sense to say that God is not willing for any to perish in an unqualified way? That it's God's will for every person to be saved rather than just his sheep, as we just read? Does the destruction of the ungodly mean God's failure to accomplish his will? Is God not in the heavens? Does he not do all that he pleases? Psalm 115.3. Can anyone thwart his will? Isaiah 14, 27. Again, let us look at our text. Consider the flow of Peter's argument. Consider the reason he is writing this sentence. Consider his audience. Peter does not say that God is not willing for any to perish. He says he is patient, not toward all, not generically, generically but toward you. His patience is constricted toward the you. Who's the you? It's his audience, those whom he is speaking to. In an age of confused pronouns, that is what you means. Not everyone here, but 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness, righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it is the church, God's people, the elect, those chosen by God in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him, Ephesians 1.4. Now Peter, still writing one sentence, writes, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This phrase does not stand by itself. It is grammatically dependent on the main clause, God is not slow, but is patient. A patience which is limited toward the you. This phrase, again, gives the reason why God is patient toward the you. Namely, that God is not willing for any to perish, but for all to reach repentance. Since the phrase, not wishing for any to perish, modifies God's patience, and since God's patience in this sentence, is constricted toward the you. The any and the all of this phrase is also constricted to the you. And it is only this grammatical reality that makes sense of Peter's theological argument. Again, 
Why is it that God is not slow in fulfilling his promise, but is patient toward you? And how does this answer the scoffer's objection that the promised coming will, in fact, come? It does so by answering the question, why Christ has not yet returned in accordance with God's sovereign will. Christ has not yet returned only because God is still accomplishing his purpose. He is still calling his people to himself. Because it is God's will for Christ to lose none of all that his Father has given him. Because God has predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, Ephesians 1.5. Because God is not willing for any, that is, any of you who will come to faith, you who are all once far off from Christ, cut off, lost, and dead in your sins, but now brought near by the blood of Christ, not willing for any of you to perish, but for all of you to reach repentance, God has not yet fulfilled this promise. Again, because if he did, if Christ came any sooner, then Christ would lose some that God is not willing for him to lose, and the purpose of God's will would not be accomplished, and some whom he is not willing to perish would perish. Therefore, only after God has called to himself through the gospel all those whom he has predestined, Romans 8, 30, then the end will come. Indeed, God's patience is purposeful. His will unstoppable. He is a God of order, not confusion. He does not have two conflicting wills, but he does whatever he pleases, and he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1.11. Yes, God does not delight in the death of the wicked, but that does not mean that God does not have a purpose for the wicked and their destruction. Romans 9. Moreover, the destruction of the wicked is a biblical reality. If God does not have a sovereign, good purpose for it, then that makes it all the more terrible. Why the ungodly in their destruction? If it is not God's will, whose will? Our will? Free will? So God doesn't intend it for a supremely good purpose, but our will causes things to exist outside of God's will? And though it is God's will for everyone to be saved, our will trumps God's because we have free will? But does God not know? Does he not know before we are born, before he creates us, before we have done anything good or bad, what the outcome of our lives will be? If it was truly God's will for everyone to be saved, then wouldn't God in his infinite wisdom and foreknowledge only give life to those whom he foreknew would believe in him? Why would he, knowing in advance and supposedly contrary to his will, create people whom he knew would die in their sins and therefore perish forever, thwarting his own will and causing so much meaningless suffering. It's absurd. Indeed, unless you are an open theist and you deny the true God and say he does not know, then there is no getting out of this. Yes, it is a hard truth, but the alternatives are far worse than the reality. God will save his people. He chooses some, not all. But no one, no thing, no will, no evil overcomes God. He will accomplish the purpose of his will. And the death of the wicked is not pointless, but God intends it for his gloriously good purpose. So now we know why Christ isn't coming back yet. Not slowness, but patience. Patience toward his people for their salvation. That is why Peter will say in the close of his letter, count the patience of the Lord as salvation. Though God is patient, the intended purpose for his patience will one day be completed, and so the day of the Lord will come. Not because God has lost his patience, but because there is no more need for his patience. 
His perfect patience will have been perfected in history, and having accomplished his purpose in this regard, God will then bring it to its full completion in the second coming of Christ. Verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The expression, like a thief, is used by Jesus and others throughout Scripture to express how his return will be surprising not to all, but to those who are spiritually asleep, that is, spiritually dead. Though no one knows the day or the hour, and therefore we must stay awake, this day will not surprise everyone like a thief, but only those who are in darkness. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1-6, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Likewise, as Jesus says to the church of Sardis, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So as the floodwaters caught the people of Noah's day off guard, so will the return of Christ for those who are not watching and waiting for his coming. To close, Peter draws out the implication that this reality should have in our lives. Verse 11, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Do you see how the reality of Christ's return should motivate us to godly living? If this is coming, and it is, And if we keep this on the forefront of our minds, what kind of fruit and zeal and endurance will it produce in our lives? How would it not affect every aspect of our lives? How would it not move us to live for what matters most, no matter the cost, knowing what will last, knowing what is at stake? Peter goes on to describe the sort of godly life we ought to live as one of waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. How do we hasten this day, a day fixed by God? Well, since that day will not come until the church completes its mission, as the church makes disciples, and as God calls his people to himself through the gospel, the day of God is sped along, so to speak. Again, according to Jesus, this is how we are to wait for his return. Not through inactivity, but by being busy with the work that he has left us to do. Do you see the significance of this? Is your mind awake to the reality of Christ's return? If not, sound an alarm. Blow a trumpet. Wake yourselves. For behold, the day of the Lord is coming. Hear again the predictions of the prophets. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. 
They will be dismayed. Pains and agony, agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the, heaven, for the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind, mankind than the gold of Ophir. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the, Lord, the, sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blasts and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. But blessed be our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is able to sustain us to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So do not let God's patience lull you into complacency, but remember that he is coming and he will not delay. Do not say there is time, for now is the time of salvation. For if you say there is time, Christ will come upon you like a thief, and you will not be ready. Remember, the day of the Lord will come. Hear again the commandment of our Lord and Savior. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. When the concerns of this world begin to rule in your hearts, whether it is family, work, hobbies, or building a house or obtaining food or things we need in this world, remember, Christ is coming back. Remember, as one poet put it, only one life till soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Remember, do not, when the, I'm sorry, when the desires of the flesh, or the desires of the eyes, or pride of life tempt you to sin to keep you from Christ, remember, Christ is coming back. Remember, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. When the world mocks you, spits on you, despises you, remember, Christ is coming back. Remember, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. When you are threatened with job loss because of Christ, because you will not waste your life by compromising your faith as you stand with God against abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism, and all that the world loves, remember, Christ is coming back. When your children are being taken away, if this happens, because of Christ. When you're thrown into jail or taken to FEMA concentration camps for re-education or execution, remember, Christ is coming back. Remember that this light momentary affliction is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So, at all times and in every situation, whatever you are facing, no matter the cost, remember, the day of the Lord will come. Behold, Christ is coming soon, bringing his recompense with him to repay each one for what he has done. Therefore, my brothers, since God's power has given us everything we need to live godly lives through the knowledge of him, and since all these things will be so, the destruction of this world, the judgment of our works, eternal death for the wicked, and eternal life for the faithful, let us remember how we ought to live. Let us remember that Christ is coming again. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you have given us salvation in your son through his death and resurrection, that he is our true ark, that in him we will be spared from your wrath that is to come and be welcomed richly into your kingdom that will last forever. Pray, Lord, that you will stir us up Keep our minds fixated on Christ's return. May we not look to the left or to the right, but keep running the race, pressing on toward the goal that we have in Christ. Pray, Lord, that as we take communion, that you will bless the bread and the cup, that we will remember not only Christ's death, but our glorious hope that he is coming again. Pray, Lord, for Hope Church. We pray, Lord, for all those who are experiencing suffering or loss, that they will trust in you, a good and wise sovereign God who does work all things for our good and his glory. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit, for your glory. Amen.